meet Melissa. She's 35 and she's been experiencing tons of gas and bloating, so much so that her stomach would distend out. She would wake up with a fairly flat stomach, but by the end of the day, it would get so bad that she had to unbutton her pants to sit. It seems like almost anything she ate made her bloat. She tried cutting out dairy, cruciferous vegetables, and even gluten, but it didn't do anything. She saw her primary who sent her to a gastroenterologist, and after various tests, he told her she had SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. He gave her a prescription antibiotic called Zyfaxin to use for 14 days. After the first week of taking it, Melissa was beyond delighted as the gas and the bloating completely subsided. She fit into her skinny jeans again and felt amazing. She finished the course and felt great for about a month. But then the gas and bloating came back with the same intensity, even though she didn't change anything else in her diet or lifestyle. She went back to the doctor and asked for another course of the antibiotic, which he gladly gave her. But unfortunately, this time around, it didn't do what it did the first time, and she didn't notice any improvement. When I met Melissa, I noticed that on top of all the bloating she had, she was also quite constipated, only moving her bowels about a few times a week. Her symptoms did resemble an overgrowth, but was it really SIBO or something else? And was her treatment for SIBO enough for her? We had to dig some more to get all the missing pieces to solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler. And this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Melissa. She was so fed up with the bloating and stomach discomfort she was feeling every day and hated the fact that she often looked like she was four months pregnant when she actually wasn't pregnant. So joining me on the show today to talk more about Melissa's case is Dr. Seth Osgood. He's a board-certified family nurse practitioner and Institute of Functional Medicine certified practitioner. He actually trained under Dr. Amy Myers, seeing patients from around the world with complex health conditions. Dr. Osgood specializes in autoimmune disorders with specific emphasis on digestive health. Dr. Osgood, so excited to have you. Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here and talk about a topic that I'm really passionate about. Um, so thank you for having me on. Oh, well, thank you for being here. Now, the gut is a really vast place and we can have overgrowth or, or what we call dysbiosis in different areas in the intestines. And some of my listeners already know that when bacteria in the gut is out of balance, we can often experience all types of digestive issues and then those can lead to other issues with immunity and autoimmunity. But with so many places to have overgrowth, it can leave people a little bit confused. So Dr. Osgood, can you please tell us what exactly is SIBO? So, yeah, absolutely. So SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And what's unique about SIBO is the fact that, you know, with all of this flora, with all of these bacterial species and in 
viruses and fungi and anaerobes, all these different things we have in our gut, the majority of the bacteria ideally should be in the large intestine. Uh, but when we have an overgrowth or too many of these, these bacteria in the small intestine, what happens is when when these bacteria ferment foods and produce gases, that uh, creates a lot of distension and bloating and discomfort, which can disrupt the uh, health of the small intestine, leaving room for intestinal permeability and inflammation and all of the negative things we see from malabsorption and uh, similar processes. So long story short, SIBO is just too much bacteria in the wrong place. And uh, that can happen for a whole host of different reasons, which I know we're going to talk a little bit more about. Yes, that's actually my next question is how do people <laughs> end up with SIBO? Yeah, so that is the key question that you want to ask. And a lot of people, um, you know, just like Melissa, I know you're talking about her, they, they go to their doctor, their primary care with these digestive symptoms, they may try some medications, eventually they end up at their gastroenterologist. And a lot of times, even now, gastroenterologists, because of the pharmaceutical rifaximin, are starting to recognize the fact that SIBO actually is real. And uh, But they, they implement Zyfaxin to wipe out that overgrowth of bacteria. The problem with that is even though it may help short term with the symptoms, it does nothing to address why that overgrowth is there in the first place. So when I look at SIBO, I don't really think of it as a, you know, a, a primary issue. A lot of times SIBO is there because for other reasons, and that's the key to getting long-term resolution. So some of the more, there's lots of things that can contribute to it, uh, but some of the more common things that I see in practice, one is low stomach acid. Um, you know, we're all supposed to have a very acidic stomach to help with breaking down food, breaking down protein, to neutralize bugs that come through our mouth, uh, you know, in, in be, for various reasons, whether that's dysbiosis or low thyroid function or um, stress, you know, or nutrient deficiencies, there's autoimmunity, there's a lot of things that contribute to low stomach acid. But when you don't have that acidic stomach, it again leaves room for imbalance to occur and overgrowth to occur. So, you know, making, assessing and addressing low stomach acid can be really, really important to overcome uh, SIBO. Bile acid dysfunction is another key thing that can contribute to imbalance, low pancreatic enzymes. Again, your body was designed to function in a specific way. So when you don't have these en enzymes, you don't have these, um, these ingredients to help properly digest food, then that food just sits there and it putrefies. And again, it sets the stage for imbalance. And in a lot of these undigested particles, again, will we'll feed flora and it, you know create that perfect breeding ground and that feeding frenzy where they just thrive. But again, it's happening in the wrong place. A lot of people will have motility issues. This is key. So you can't fix SIBO and keep it away if you're not pooping uh, regularly. And, and constipation can really play into that. And a lot of that boils down to um, you know, impaired uh, vagal tone or parasympathetic dysfunction, which is a fancy way of saying your central nervous system is always on high alert. And the majority of people these days are chronically stressed out for one reason or another, which affects how your, your body uh, responds, how your central nervous system responds. So when you're in that fight or flight stage, your gut just doesn't move. The blood flow is in your periphery because your brain thinks you're getting ready to fight a fight or, uh, you know, or run from a bear. But that takes away the fuel from the digestive tract, which is uh, just essential for you know all aspects of health. 
So I'd say, you know, the enzymes, the acid, the, you know, the uh, motility issues. But one of the big problems we see today, too, that contributes to SIBO is dysbiosis related to, you know, chronic antibiotic use or pharmaceuticals like uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, aspirin or ibuprofen. We know that those do not set well in the gut and cause a lot of imbalance and dysfunction. Uh, and then the PPIs or proton pump inhibitors, everybody these days seems to be on an acid blocker. And when you're on that acid blocker, it goes back to that low stomach acid where it just, you know, allows, um, you know, all of these, uh, these bacteria and bugs to set foot in the wrong location and then create the imbalance. And that's why we're seeing these PPIs now, you know, research is popping up, associating them with various conditions like cognitive dysfunction or osteoporosis or, you know, or heart disease because the body doesn't have the fuel it needs to thrive uh, from because it's not getting the nutrition from not having enough of the acid. And, you know, I, again, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many different things to consider, but that is the number one thing to think about when you get that diagnosis. When, you're, when your doctor is saying, okay, let's try some Zyfaxin, that may be necessary and that may be effective in the short term, but if you don't fix why uh, it's there to begin with, you're going to end up right back in that same situation. Yeah, what you're saying is so vital. And this is exactly what happened with Melissa. Her doctor didn't address any of those things. And to be honest, didn't even really ask her too much about that. He was very quick to say, oh, you're gassy, you're bloated. Great. You know, you have SIBO. Let's put you on this antibiotic. And of course, with Zofaxin or Zofaxapin, they're not going to be as sort of harsh as other antibiotics, but they're still going to have effects. And they also are only treating that bacteria. But like you said, they're not doing anything to actually prevent the reason why it happened in the first place. Dr. Osgood, what are some symptoms of SIBO? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the symptoms, you know, some of them are pretty obvious and some of them are not so obvious. But what we know is that when, when the gut is affected, it can influence every aspect of your body, whether that is, uh, you know, your skin or your cognitive function, your, your joints, your muscles, uh, you know, your, your mood. So there's various symptoms that can relate to SIBO, but probably some of the more common ones are, you know, gas and bloating, uh, you know, belching, uh, you know, abdominal discomfort. A lot of a lot of women, I hear a lot of women say, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, three months pregnant, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not pregnant, you know, and, and that, that's a red flag right there that there's probably an overgrowth going on. But because of the malabsorption that happens from SIBO, sometimes you'll have weight loss, sometimes you'll have weight gain. A couple of common skin issues that we frequently see are things like rosacea or eczema or just weird rashes that people will present with that will, you know, dissipate or go away when uh, when the SIBO is is taken care of I always say the the uh, you know skin skin is a mirror image of the gut so if you've got skin abnormalities whether that's eczema rosacea um, acne or, or whatever the case may be you have to be thinking about what's going on in the gut and a lot of times um, you know SIBO is uh, is part of that situation and then probably one of the other classic symptoms is just fluctuating bowel movements where you know you may go from having uh, you know profuse diarrhea to being completely constipated and just, you know, going back and forth somewhere in between. And that is very common with SIBO. The, a large majority of, of, C, of IBS, you know, a lot of people are diagnosed with this 
you know, irritable bowel syndrome, which pretty much means that, you know, you've got something wrong with your gut. We don't know what it is. So take these medications and see what happens. But a lot of the root causes of IBS is actually SIBO. So, uh, you know, when you have that irritable bowel syndrome diagnosis, you really want to be thinking about SIBO as a culprit for sure. Mm -hmm. oh, how common is SIBO? Oh man. So, you know, honestly, I, I, it's, it's very, very common. And again, I, I don't think it is necessarily the, a primary cause, but I think it is a manifestation of having gut imbalance for various reasons. So if you just do a quick, you know, PubMed search of SIBO, what's really cool about it is you're, we're seeing more and more things, more and more associations between chronic disease and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And not just with gut issues, not just with colitis or IBS, but they're starting to pick it up now and associate it with things like diabetes and pancreatitis, gallbladder disease, even, you know, uh, you know, opiate use. There's, if you just look mm -hmm. at the research, there's, it's blowing up with SIBO because we're now that, again, that we have some drugs where they're taking interest in it. We're starting to see, you know, how common it really is. And so many people uh, are suffering from it. But again, we, you know, in our, in our, in our uh, conventional medical model, we're very reactive where, you know, we treat things as an acute problem, but SIBO is not an acute problem. It happens over time. It happens for specific reasons. So if you just treat it with the med, you, you know, you're not really fixing why it's there in the first place, and you're going to end up right back in that same situation. But it, it's very common, and uh, in, and I think we're going to notice that is even more common than what we're seeing now because of all the attention it's getting. Well, how do we test for SIBO, Doctor Osgood? So there are various ways you can look for SIBO. Probably the gold the gold standard is usually a hydrogen breath test, a three hour hydrogen breath test, um, and. What that consists of is you, uh, you you get a baseline breath sample and they usually you do a kit at your gastroenterologist office or you can be sent home with a kit and you uh, get a breath, a baseline sample to see what type of gases are being produced without any provocation. Then you take lactulose. Now lactulose, it, it, what it does is it feeds bacteria and it, the bacteria will then ferment the lactulose into gases. And typically what we're measuring by a breath test is methane uh, or hydrogen. Usually methane dominance presents more with the constipation scenario where hydrogen is more uh, diarrhea, but it's, it's not... Um, a direct correlation that you can have both gases with mixed symptoms, but that's typically what you'll see. So you drink that sugary, drink that lactulose, and then you collect breath samples over the three hour period. Now what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to not create any gases until you're that until about two hours later when that hits the large intestine. Now, when that lactose hits the large intestine, where all the flora is supposed to be, again, they ferment the lactose into those gases, and that's where you should see a spike. But when you see a spike immediately or soon after um, you know, ingestion, then you're going to, you know that there's an overgrowth of bacteria there. So the SIBO is, breath test is the gold standard. You want to make sure you're doing that. And that's helpful because you need to know what gas is present because the treatments will vary. And you want to judge where you are before and after treatment to make sure you're heading in the right direction. The other test that we'll use often in the clinic is an organic acid test, uh, which looks at both bacterial and fungal metabolites, uh, which is important as well. I, I recommend doing both tests because sometimes the SIBO test doesn't pick up on the overgrowth and, and sometimes the organic acid test doesn't pick up on the overgrowth. And, and a, a lot of times what you'll see is that fungal overgrowth in the small intestine as well, which needs to be addressed in rifaximin 
or Zyfaxin doesn't touch the fungus. So, you know, a lot of times that's where we'll use more of the herbal approach to knock down the fungus, to knock down the bacteria so we can have that, that, that uh, balanced uh, state of the microbiome in the, in the small intestine so healing can occur. So the, mm-hmm. those are the two primary tests that are used for diagnosis, the breath test and the organic acid test. Each has its strengths and its weakness, but both are very good tests. That's great. And I use both as well. And it is so helpful when you see both, especially when you're looking at the yeast marker on the organic acid, because like you said, we can't see that through a breath test. And then that's another reason why antibiotics may not help someone or may help a little bit, but then you know, they're not going to see results after that. Absolutely. Now, what about stool testing? A lot of people do stool tests and um, I have a lot of people coming into me with stool test results after seeing other practitioners. I'm sure you probably do as well. Can stool tests give us any indication about SIBO? Well, stool tests are, uh, are very important as well, because when you're dealing with digestive issues, you want to make sure you're addressing the, the whole picture. And sometimes, uh, you know, you can miss that with only focusing on the small intestine. But the vast majority of stool tests, you know, are focused solely on the large intestine. And now there is some evidence that certain uh, bacterial overgrowth in this large intestine can be associated with small intestine bacterial overgrowth. But but really, it's not very good at detecting SIBO specifically. Very important, but but not you know as accurate as what we would like to see for detecting an, a problem in the small intestine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I really want people to take away from this or listening, that if you have a stool test that doesn't show much overgrowth, it doesn't mean that that overgrowth isn't in another area or that it's not yeast and vice versa. If you have a lot in the colon, it doesn't necessarily mean it's in the small intestine, though oftentimes if there's motility issues and things like that, it can be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do sometimes find too with stool testing, if we're seeing really low elastase one, which is a marker for uh, pancreatic enzymatic production or, um, acid levels that look low, you know, those are indications kind of like you're saying, because these are the things that can be culprits as to why SIBO happens. So if you see that, it does give a little bit of a clue. Yeah, that's a great point. Because I mean, again, we're trying to figure out why this is happening. So if your pancreas isn't making those enzymes, or, you know, or if you've got some other type of infection. Now, one of the things, you know, with the stool test that we do pick up that can again lead to imbalance and dysbiosis is, you know, infections like H. pylori, for example, and sometimes our stool tests will pick up on that. But as you, you know, or, you know, you can look at zonulin for an indicator of maybe, you know, is, how bad is this intestinal permeability issue? So all of it is great information. You just have to prioritize what makes the most sense, um, you know, for you at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. And then put everything together because it's yeah. almost like this puzzle, it right? Is. We have to find all the pieces. <laughs> yeah. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, Dr. Osgood, once we know that there is SIBO, yeah. how do we go about treating it? What do we do? It's a great question. So, uh, you know, the treatment begins with the why, of course. So you have to be addressing all of those potential underlying uh, causes above and beyond everything with the stomach acid, with, uh, you know, the enzymes. You have to make sure that people uh, have their diet in check because, again, if you're eating inflammatory foods or foods that are processed or high in sugar or high in toxins, you're never going to fix that gut. Uh, you have to make, and this is something I didn't mention before under the causes, but 
I, I think stress is a huge, huge player uh, when it comes to SIBO. In fact, I was just talking to a, a woman today and, uh, you know, she had a big stressful event. She'd been SIBO free for a, over a year and a half and then boom, her symptoms all came back. So you have to be persistent with, with stress management, you know, removing toxic relationships, but more importantly, being proactive with things that help you go to your Zen zone, go to your happy place and stimulate that parasympathetic tone. So those are all, you know, the foundational elements that need to be there for your body to recover and your body to stay well. But when you're going after the SIBO directly, uh, you know, that you can use a couple of approaches. Now, I'm a fan of herbal therapy. And uh, I, I'm, I just I like I like herbs over pharmaceuticals when I can use them. So, uh, you know, there's different herbs out there, different combination of herbs. Some have been studied really well. Some have not. But there is but various things are uh, are effective and you have to figure out what's going to work for you uh, just because, you know, the research may show one couple of herb herbal combinations is is, you know, more effective than another doesn't mean that it's going to be the case in your particular situation. So we usually use herbs to try to knock down the um, the flora once we've corrected all of those other uh, foundational elements. Uh, and then, you know, and there's various herbs out there. Do you want any specifics that we're using? Or Yes, please. Okay, great. So a lot of times, you know, some of the research, the, some of the more common research that people refer to is like the combination of FC-cidal and dysbiocide. Uh, and there was a, an article or a study done looking at FC-cidal and dysbiocide as a combo uh, drug and then look, using metagenics, um, candibactin AR and candibactin BR from metagenics. And uh, they, it was shown to be as effective, if not more effective than using Zyfaxin alone. So those are two good go to pairings that work really well, but individual herbs sometimes are needed as well. Like sometimes we'll layer in uh, allicin or neem or artemisinin, uh, you know, oregano and uh, olive leaf. And you'll see a lot of those herbs in some of these combinations as well. So various herbals out there, um, you got to, again, just work with your practitioner and figure out what's going to, what makes the most sense for you after looking at the full picture uh, but, you know, from a pharmaceutical standpoint, a lot of uh, conventional docs will will use rifaximin or zifaxin. Uh, sometimes they'll combine that with neomycin, depending on if methane is present. Uh, Alinea is another actually antiparasitic that seems to have some antibacterial properties that works well for refractory uh, SIBO cases. Uh, but, you know, those are usually in certain situations, only used in certain situations when people really need quick results um, or they've exhausted other options. So I like to start with the herbs. Medications are an option, uh, but then you also have to be focusing in on, you know, the right probiotics. And there's a lot of information out there about probiotics. And I still don't think we have the full picture on that. And I think it's going to be an individualized one. But when mm -hmm. we're dealing with SIBO, we know that some probiotics uh, can be irritating and can be inflammatory where people feel worse with them. So you have right. to be careful. I usually start with a spore forming probiotic. You know, honestly, my go to is Megaspore Biotic, but there's a lot of different ones out there now. Uh, and uh, or Saccharomyces boulardii, which is actually like a probiotic yeast that seems to work well, uh, has anti, you know, bacterial and anti candida properties to it that is very well tolerated when you have a really uh, ornery guts. Uh, other things, you know, from a treatment mm -hmm. standpoint, depending on how hardcore you want to get, uh, you know, there's the elemental diets that are, you know, pretty popular in these refractory cases where essentially for 
14 to 21 days, you are just drinking an elemental shake. And the what the concept behind or the theory behind that is that you are starving off the bacteria that are there that are overgrown because you're not feeding them. The elemental diet is absorbed proximally in the small intestine. So you're not feeding that overgrowth. And I have seen some success with that as well. And then, um, you know, there's dietary approaches as well, you know, like the low FODMAP diet or uh, there's various diets out there that are used for SIBO. But I've found with that, even though there's some good evidence out there for low FODMAPs, number one, you don't want to stay on it forever because it's, you know, you're not getting the prebiotic and probiotic foods that actually help feed the good flora in the large intestine. Um, And uh, it doesn't work for everybody. So you got to see what works best for you. Mm -hmm. other things I think about with treatment are the prokinetics to make sure things keep moving using natural things like mag citrate or, uh, you know, low dose naltrexone or, um, you know, even vagal nerve exercises are, are very important. And then, you know, also uh, another go to with people just aren't getting better is we'll really focus in on biofilm disruptors. Um, and sometimes that can really be the missing link that gets people over the hump as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. So much good information here. And I just want to back up one second to the prokinetics because I think this is a really important thing. And for so many people, the issues with motility is like you're saying what caused SIBO in the first place. So do you typically work on those first before doing the cleansing sort of killing off phase or do you do that at the same time? Yeah, yeah, no, no. So I mean, kind of both. I mean, we that that's one thing before we start treatment, though, I got I always tell my patients, we need to be pooping, we need to be having regular bowel movements. So you know, the last thing you want to do is go and kill a bunch of bugs, have them, you know, have that that die off reaction and not be able to do anything with all of those byproducts, because that'll just trigger a larger inflammatory response, and they'll become more toxic. So it's really important before you go into kill mode to make sure you are able to eliminate everything. And that's, you know, I always tell people, you got to pee, you got to poop, you got to sweat, you got to breathe. So if you're not doing, you know, any of those four things to help you with detox, you're going to really struggle and the treatment's not going to be effective. So we really try to emphasize those motility agents in the very beginning, but we also make that an absolute priority moving forward because as soon as things slow down again, you can end up right back in that same situation. And it's, it's tricky. That can be a tricky one because some people are struggling with constipation from birth, you know, and, uh, and, and it's a little bit more challenging, uh, but you've got to master that. You've got to figure out the combination and it's different for everybody, but there's usually something out there that works. But I, you know, again, getting back to the vagal nerve exercises and stimulating that parasympathetic tone, um, that that is that is absolutely essential and key to maintaining good motility as well. Yeah, and so, that's not something that I think enough people are talking about. And I don't think that people realize if they have a motility issues that it could be that. I think people often think about, okay, I need to take more magnesium because magnesium citrate is something that's fairly known, and you know people can yeah, go to that. Yeah. But let's talk about uh, the vagus nerve a little bit more. Why yeah. can it become off, and what can people do to help to get it going and stimulate that? So a lot of people, you know, have vagal nerve dysfunction related to their HPA access, which, you know, is just a, 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 the connection between your, your brain and your adrenals and, uh, you know, and all of the other things in your body, you know, in your brain, your adrenals are important for gut 
gut function and for motility, but the, the vagus nerve really just slows everything down. And, and when things are slowed down, that's where the gut does its best work. And that's where, you know, the brain does its best work. So when people are under chronic stress for an extended period of time, again, they, they get into that, that fight or flight mode and it just deprives the gut of everything it needs to stay healthy. So, and that's the majority of our population these days, whether mm -hmm. it's relationships or finances or poor health, uh, whatever the case may be that's stressing your body out, you know, you get into that, that fight or flight drive and then your vagal tone just goes out the window. So we have to be absolutely proactive with doing specific exercises to uh, stimulate that vagal tone so that uh, migrating motor complex can be functioning properly in the gut. So there's a, you know, various things you can do. There's great articles online. There's some really good books out there talking specifically just about vagal nerve exercises and how important the vagus is to uh, overall health. But, you know, gargling water, singing, meditation, um, coffee enemas uh, in moderation. Just got to be careful with those. And, uh, it, you know, all of those things can really help and even stimulating your gag reflex. Sometimes I'll literally, you got to be careful with this, but have, you know, people take a tongue depressor and stick it in the back of their throat and stimulate their gag reflex over and over again. And that again can wake up that vagus nerve and help with that motility. So there's so many different things that you can do. It's totally under, you know, all these basic, easy, cheap exercises that people can do at their home are totally underutilized and just are, are need to be at the forefront, especially when we're dealing with gut health. Yeah, um, this is such good information and it's so important. And that's the thing too, a lot of this we could do on our own. I mean, of course, it's very important to have a good practitioner, but it, it kind of takes both. You know, we have to do it from our end and then, you know, we need help from a practitioner. But from this end and from the stress uh, point as well. There's just so much that we can really work on on our own to help this. Absolutely. I mean, I think every stress is such. I mean, I, I'm the firm believer that stress is the number one killer of uh, you know in our society today. So we have to be proactive with it. I think you know people are people. Everybody should be seeing a counselor. Everybody should be you know doing meditation. Everybody should be exercising routinely. You know, we just we get into this zone where we, we put stress, you know, management on the back burner above, uh, you, you know, behind everything else. So we get, we got to make sure that that is foundational when we're dealing with health, whether it's, you know, even, a, you know, with diet and with physical activity and with sleep, you know, with stress, all of those things need to be at the forefront, because if you're not well, you're not going to be able to be there for the people you love and accomplish the dreams that you want to accomplish. So you, you have to you have to just make that a priority. Mm, so true. So true. And I think a lot of times conventionally, people may go to the doctor and the doctor says, Oh, you're fine. It's just stress. And you know, I mean, I think that term, right? Just yeah. stress. Well, it's like, well, no, it's really important. It is stress, but I think it's played it down. It's just stress. You're fine. <laughs> Eventually that stress yeah. will kill you. <laughs> like you were saying. Exactly. And there's so much research out there showing all of these associations between stress and all of these disease processes, whether it's heart disease or autoimmunity or cognitive dysfunction and, you know, neurodegeneration. There's just, we have to take it seriously because it's going to kill us if we don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
Now, Dr. Osgood, I know that you've trained with some very well-known doctors like Dr. Amy Myers, and you have several clinics throughout the country, but I'm curious, how did you get into this work? I, I was born and raised in Vermont. I grew up on a, a small dairy farm. Uh, my parents owned an organic dairy farm in Vermont, and I came from a household of six, and five of us actually had uh, an irritable bowel syndrome diagnosis. So we grew up in a house where uh, everybody had, everybody but my father had gut issues. Mm -hmm. So I remember just how horrible it was and how uncomfortable it was, you know, the mad dashes to the, the restrooms when you'd go on vacation, you'd have to scope out where the bathrooms were, you know, the family feuds that would break out over who took the last emodium. It Aww. was, uh, that was our norm, you know, and that's what we grew up with because my, my mom had, had suffered, you know, her entire life and she'd been to multiple specialists, multiple doctors, like many of our patients. And she was just given this, you know, this label and told, well, there's nothing really you can do about it. Uh, you're just going to have to take these over-the-counter meds and uh, that's going to be life. So that's what we grew up knowing, knowing and uh, that's how we lived. Later on, she actually found a uh, functional medicine doctor. Now, this was our, I was already in school uh, and she changed her diet and literally transformed her health. So I was going through my program, my conventional program at the time. So uh, I talked, I remember talking to her, she gave me, she called me up one day and she's like, Hey, you're not gonna believe this, but I don't have any gut issues anymore. And mm -hmm. here I am, you know, struggling every day with them. So I'm like, no way. And, and I said, so what'd you do? What'd you take? Cause my immediate thought was, you know, she took right. the medication and, and fixed it because that's what I was trained to, how I was trained to think she was, I didn't take anything. You're not going to believe this, but this doctor helped me fix my diet. And, uh, you know, we removed certain things and, and my symptoms just went away. And I'm like, I was very, very skeptical. And, uh, as you know, most people would be, but I was desperate because I was suffering from the same things and I changed my diet. And again, same thing happened. All my symptoms went, went away along with all of my other family members who were suffering. And, uh, and what, what it ended up being one of the main culprits was, um, dairy. So, you know, here we are, <laughs> we grow up on wow. a farm, right? We're, we're an organic dairy farm. Nobody. And what was so frustrating to me Number one, going through all of that schooling, all of those years, years of education, we didn't spend any time talking about the impact of diet on gut health or health in general. So that was really frustrating to me. But number two, looking back at all of this suffering that we had been through, all of this discomfort that we had felt, you know, it affected us in so many different ways. And it could have been avoided by just simply taking a quick history and asking what we're eating. You know, you bring your dog to the vet and the first thing that vet asks when they're sick is what has the dog been eating? But we don't get that question. Mm -hmm. And it can save people so much suffering if we just look at what we're fueling our body with. So that just stemmed my passion for functional medicine. And I dove in at full bore after that. But it's just, uh, it's, it's so incredible. I am a firm believer, just the body was meant to heal. And we have to respect that fact. We try to screw it up in every way we can, the way we live, the way we eat, the way we torment our body with our environment, but it is meant to heal. And if we just give it the fuel that it needs and we remove the sources of inflammation, incredible things will happen no matter what your diagnosis is. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your story. That's amazing that, you know, not just you, but your whole family essentially was able to heal with making some of these changes. Uh, absolutely agree with you. The body is meant to heal. And we hear that a lot, but I don't think people really take that in. I don't think people really kind of understand what that yeah. means. And it's, it's really about getting out of your own way and getting some of these other things out of your sort of buckets, uh, so to speak, so that they're not 
inflaming the body and hurting the body. You know, and it's the society's working against you, you know, so you have to be your own advocate. You have to take control in your own hands. I mean, even with our patients, I, you know, talk to them and I tell them, you know, this is not something that I'm doing for you. This is what you're doing for yourself. We're here to guide you and get you to that end point. But you have to take control of your health because if you don't make changes, uh, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. And no matter what medication you're taking, although it may be important for an acute problem, you're doing nothing to fix why it's there to begin with. And that is what's going to create optimal health, uh, you know, for everybody in the years to come. That's what we need to really start focusing in on, you know, not, not only individually, but as a society. For sure. Dr. Osgood, thank you so much for all of this information. I so appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. As we just heard, SIBO can be a huge reason for feeling gassy and bloated. It was a big part of Melissa's issue. But addressing the root causes of SIBO and working with all the infections that can go along with it versus just taking an antibiotic is what's needed to get to the root and fix it once and for all. I'll tell you more about what we did for Melissa in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Seth Osgood, please visit healthmysterysolve.com and go to episode number 12. There, as always, you'll see all the details, show notes, and you can reference everything we talked about. And if you guys enjoyed this interview, I also interviewed Dr. Osgood for my Overcoming Hashimoto Summit, where we talk about how SIBO can be a trigger for Hashimoto's and autoimmunity in general. And you could check that out by heading over to the summit website link, which is also going to be in the show notes. Now for Melissa, We did another SIBO test, which came back positive for methane SIBO. This is a type of SIBO that can often cause constipation, which made a lot of sense with her symptoms. We also did a food sensitivity test through Vibrant America Labs. And while she was okay with gluten, she came out positive for a corn sensitivity. So we removed corn from her diet and worked on gently stimulating elimination with a combination of supplements. I used calcium magnesium citrate and paleo fiber, which are my two favorites for naturally moving bowels without using any types of laxatives. We also added in digestive enzymes, a supplement called Bitter X for bioflow, and started doing vagal nerve toning with gargling. We did an organic acid test, which showed an overgrowth of yeast in her intestines. So she had not only SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, but also CFO, small intestine fungal overgrowth. I knew that methane SIBO was partly responsible for our constipation, but I also knew that in order to start getting rid of the SIBO, we had to get her bowels moving, even if it was just a little bit. And so removing corn, adding the supplements and supporting the vagus nerve did just enough to get things moving at least every other day, which was already way better than when she started. Once that happened, we started to address the SIBO and CFO with antimicrobial herbs. And I'm not against antibiotics in all cases. Zyfaxin can work well against bacteria, but it doesn't do anything for the yeast and it doesn't do anything to get the migrating motor complexes to start working again, which is why that treatment was not completely successful for her initially. So I put Melissa on a low FODMAP diet, and that's a diet that's low in fermentable sugars. And she also avoided corn because that was on her fruit sensitivity test, took the bowel support nutrients, the calcium, magnesium, citrate, and paleo fiber, along with the enzymes and the bitter X, and we did that for two weeks. Then we used two synergistic antimicrobial combinations, FC-cytal 
and GI microbex. And I also added in allicillin, which is a garlic extract. And that's been studied to be specifically helpful against the methane type of SIBO that Melissa had. We did these cleansing nutrients for six weeks. When we started, Melissa actually felt like she was even a little bit more gassy, which is not uncommon when you start cleansing, because as the bacteria is killed off, it often releases toxins that it was storing inside, and that can make people feel a little bit worse before they feel better. Thankfully, this doesn't typically last very long, and dosages can also be adjusted to help this potential detox reaction. After the first week, Melissa was feeling better, and by the end of the six weeks of cleansing and following the diet, Her gas and bloating was completely gone and she was able to go to the bathroom daily with no struggles. We continued the fiber and the calcium magnesium citrate, but after the cleanse was done, Melissa didn't even really need the calcium magnesium as her bowels were moving so well on their own. We added in a supplement called Motil Pro, which is a prokinetic. And what that does is it helps to stimulate the migrating motor complexes, which are sort of like these sweeps. Uh, think of them as like brooms that help to sweep everything downward in the intestines. And this keeps things from moving down and preventing things from being stagnant and allowing the bacteria to crawl back up. Melissa took the Motil Pro for about three months and continued with digestive enzymes and Bitter X for about six months. She was feeling really great and was able to come off all of those supplements with no issues after that. And she's so happy to be able to keep her pants on all day now. If Melissa sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. As always, when it comes to solving your health issues, no matter how complex they may be, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.